This guest is named Diana. If you scroll back in your podcast player from this episode all the way to number 29 of this show, it's actually the same guest. We originally met in June 2003 doing Teach for America, both of us training in Houston. Okay, so episode 29, not this one, is largely about an assessment she sent me and I completed and what that says about me and her as professionals. So that episode is a little bit more of a quote-unquote work episode, and this is a little bit more of a personal episode because we've both been divorced somewhere among the 17 summers since we first met. The core difference contextually is probably that she's still close with her ex and they have a spot in each other's lives, which is not my experience. But in this episode, 47, where you are now currently, we talk about a bunch of stuff, including the first wedding you attend after your own divorce, which can be pretty trippy. Plus, expectations, reaction versus response, coaching, COVID-19 as a near-death experience, and more. All right, let's get into it. coaching there's more of a need for coaching than ever right Right, because whether it's dispelling your panic or helping you emotionally process through not having a job or career coaching or how are you going to manage a reduction in force or how are you going to manage the fact that everybody's belt tightening or what does your strategy look like now that the entire world just changed and a couple industries at least temporarily got shut down So, and then the other thing is, is because all the normal self-care things that people do, mani-pedi, massage, gym, all of those are shut down, right? And people are over, overdosing on screen time. So in reality, if you're going to make a business case for coaching, now's the time. But with all the belt tightening, people don't want to spend the money. So for me right now. That's the ultimate cash 22. Exactly. So, you know, people see and recognize the value. They just are afraid. And so, you know, but those who aren't being laid off, some, a lot of people are busier than ever, right? Because they're having to handle the workload of the rifts. So some of it too also just depends on what your mix of clients are, what industries they're in, you know, are they corporate or not? But, you know, it's so it's definitely a belt tightening time. I'm just hoping it passes quick because when it does pass, there's going to be a scramble, right? People need to know who and how to hire. People need to re-strategize. People are going to want to develop. You have top top performers who have a choice in who they work for and are looking for satisfaction. So, you know, fingers crossed it's a short term thing yeah i know i'm one of the only people who actually is crossing their fingers and hoping for that but my thing is is like choose choose calm yes i would agree with that i would say um okay these are some of my generalized takes on it i would say this is probably worse in northern california than where i'm at but i would say um, a lot of housing market shit. Sure. I, f- I feel like got way out of hand. Okay, we got that, and like some corporate startup type valuations way out of hand. Yeah, almost like a free money mentality. I wouldn't mind the market coming down like ten percent overall. I don't want people to lose jobs. Obviously, I don't want people to die, but I wouldn't mind houses coming within reasonable prices because I do right. feel like home purchase is a big deal for people. It's kind of like the it's kind of like the the bar level that people can get in on like the big picture economy at. Like that's where most people can access it. Cause most people don't have like millions of dollars in fucking Amazon stock or whatever, right? Exactly. So I feel like uh, I was telling my friend this like last night I guess like a block away from me so I walk my dog past it all the time there oh the this... dogs love it you want to talk about the winners oh, of they, COVID? They're big the winners. dogs are yeah. like the, the pack yeah. home 
They yeah. take me out all the time. This is amazing. Yep. Like Mother Earth dog, and the dogs, yeah. they're doing good, man. My dog is like passed out right now because like earlier today, I probably did like 3.1 with him, right? Because I was <laughs> like, we're just going out just because I want to escape uh, the house, you know? Exactly. Um, okay, but I walk my dog past this house probably twice a day. And it is like brick exterior, but it legit, like if you were coming up on it, it's in a, like an above average to nice neighborhood. But I would say if you were coming up on it, you'd be like, that's very potentially a meth house, right? And then somebody died. I think like a matriarch of a family died. So maybe like three or four weeks ago when like COVID was like scaling up in the U.S., before there was any like distancing stuff, there was an estate sale in there. So I've been inside of it too. Oh, look and at you, detective. Right. And it's like, dude, it is like a meth house that someone decorated in 1947, right? <laughs> so you would. As have the best to... meth houses are. Right. No doubt. But like you would, if you bought that in your 30s, like 20s through 40s, Anybody who buys this thing would be like, well, I got to gut like the kitchen and some other shit because it's just super old timey unless you really like that, which some old people do. Timey. But like, <laughs> yeah. Like hey, the hipsters, man. That's it true. Might, they might per, love it is it. perhaps unique in its old timeiness. Yeah. So like, OK, I saw. Uh, so one time I'm walking my dog. I had been in the house at that point. It was like maybe four weeks ago. So I asked the lady, um, like, putting her sign up for it. I was like, what's this thing going to run? And she was like, oh, probably like 4.15 to 4.30. And I was like, you got to be kidding me, man. Like, to her face, I was like, you got to be kidding me. You're like, it's an old-timey meth house. (laughs) Yeah, she's like, no, man. Like, But it's, it's like seven minutes to downtown, and, like, you can, you know, there's, like, a fucking Whole Foods near it, and all this shit that realtors say, right? And I was like, dude, there is, I understand, like, I almost got into it with this, like, 50-something woman over this house. Because <laughs> I was like, you you understand that, like, I know, we both know there is some dude or some young married couple that's going to come along and buy this house at 4.30, and you're going to be fine, and we can talk about how great the market is. Maybe not right now, but it will eventually happen. It will but, recover. Exactly. Yeah. Right, but I'm like, this house is not worth $430,000 because if you put work into it, you're probably coming up on a half a million dollars with like closing fees, work, plus the base price of it. And it's like, this is not a half million dollar home, man, right? And like, she was like, well, you You should perhaps not be picking fights with women on (laughs) the street with keys to a meth house, though. Just, just, you know, friend to friend. Friend and my, friend. my dog was even staring at me like, uh, <laughs> like, like what are you, what are you doing? doing? Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> dude, this house needs to be torn down emotionally, not physically. <laughs> I need to tell this woman that it's not worth what she thinks it's worth. But again, to what I was just saying, obviously someone's going to come along and probably spend 450 on it, right? So it, the, the ecosystem will work itself out. But I would I would love to see like a ten percent drop there and I, for a little bit and then I would love to see like let's not in these belt tightening times let's not have like another we work come through the cracks right <laughs> or like let's like let's actually look at business models for what they are um, instead of just like handing people like run rates of cash or whatever right. So well, that would be my other hope for if we could get two like baseline things out of this financially, I would say bring down the absurdity of some metro area housing markets and like let's actually look at businesses and be like, could that thing make money on its own within five to ten years? <laughs> Those yeah. would be my first two things. Well, and it'll be interesting to see because there's still a lot of people who can't see past this. And they're so fixated on what's happening right now and the fear. And, you know, that's understandable. Obviously, people are dying. We're in our houses. People are over it. I get it. But it will be interesting to see what happens after this. Because I think that's part of why people aren't calm and they can't maintain the calm is that they're so, you know, it's ironic 
people are supposed to live in the present, but now people are so focused on and panicked in the present that they're not necessarily looking to the future to see how this might change. But, you know, airline stocks on sale, people, you know, like I wouldn't necessarily recommend cruise line stock, but if you think people aren't going to fly again, you got sales, you got stocks on sale that never go on sale, you know, potentially at prices that they were at 2008. So, you know, I did read an article about, you know, caution the dip, right? Because it's unprecedented times, but at the same time, you know, the money went somewhere, right? It's just being held in different pockets. Yeah. And there, we will get through this pandemics end, you know, so it's, it's, and that's not to minimize any loss of life or, right. you know, the emotions that people are feeling, but, you know, the, if people can find the silver lining and find the opportunity and look beyond it, then, you know, that will help move us forward and the market will recover. It always does. Right. So what's your take on these, like these bigger, like psychological, emotional discussions where people are like, Oh man, we're going to come out of this with like so much more empathy and communication ability and respect for humanity. I want to believe that. (laughs) I want to believe that it's 50% true. I just worry that what's going to happen is at an individual level, we're going to quote unquote reopen and people are going to be like, let's meet up with friends, family at like some restaurant, some outdoor deal or whatever. And then like in the midst of that shit happening and being like, wow, this feels like we're free again. People are just (laughs) going to forget about all the shit, the lessons that, we supposedly got from this. That's my individual fear. And then my like business fear is that once people can make money in the legacy way that they knew how to make money or were familiar with, they're going to be like, okay, well like back to business as usual. Right. I hope there is some type of uh, brain shift or uh, life shift or soft skill shift. I don't, have full belief that's going to happen. Maybe you have a better view of humanity though. <laughs> it's people who want to change will change. Right. right? That's people good who, people who see the silver lining naturally or look for the opportunity naturally are going to look for that. Others who understandably are living in fear right now and living in anxiety right now, who then get to embrace that to be like, Hey, I didn't die my either I didn't get laid off or if I got laid off, I will get another job. Right. Right. You know, there's, if there's those who there's those who just stay in the silver lining, there's going to be those who having experienced the darkness and the despair and the fear and the anxiety are going to choose the higher way. Right. And then there's going to be, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who get divorced after being trapped in their houses with their people. And then there's going to be people who, you know, who when told to go back to work or when told, hey, we gave up the office because y'all can work remote. There are going to be people who wait until the kind of COVID layoffs and all of that pass and then are like, I don't want to work in this job anymore. So, you know, there's it's. I think the thing is, is that what you're describing in some ways equates it to a near-death experience. If someone sees it as a near-death experience, there's a chance that they'll say, hey, you know, I want to live a better life. But for a lot of people, this isn't a near-death experience, though they're equating that much fear to it. And then, you know, you are going to have the people who still lie, cheat, steal, et cetera. So I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to rain on the parade of humanity. I'm saying it's a choice, right? And that's, that's actually how I make my living is helping people see their choices, helping them choose better, be better. So of course I believe in the human potential, but you know, we talk about with employees, skill, will, and focus, you know, do you have the will? Like, do you have the desire? Because right. that's a huge factor on how people, you know, because there's going to be someone else who lost their job and lost someone and is like, COVID ruined my life and I don't want to live anymore. Right. right? So like, right. you know, and, and that's, 
that can be a chemical thing. That can be a situational thing. I'm not trying to say that that's not a very, like that despair for someone may be very real, but it's, it's how they choose. It's being able to see that we have choices, even when we feel like we don't have okay, choices. So this, this made me think of this while you were saying the choices thing. Cause I work with one guy right now. And he's like, he's actually does real estate shit. And like, I do some of his like emails are like writing crap. Right. And he's always like recently, he's always like, I want to convey more of the idea that like, whether you're leasing or buying, like everything can seem chaotic right now, but you have choices, which I agree with a hundred percent. Okay. So I wonder if like for you, what you do, do you ever think that the fact that it feels like, and I might be wrong on this first part, but the fact that it feels like a lot of people have very binary thinking right now, just on like lots of different societal topics. Oh, for like, sure. Okay. Do you ever feel like that makes it harder when you coach up people to get them to realize, like, in many situations, professionally and personally, you have, like, four options, even though you might only immediately see two, right? Like, do you think that society's, like, over-focus on, like, black and white shit in the last five years, um, or, like, you're wrong because you believe this, and I'm right because I believe this. Do you think that creeps into, like, the coaching side of it, too? Well, I mean, that's job security for coaches, right? right. That's because, true. <laughs> yeah, 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 because the more, the more, because the thing is, is that I don't know all the names of the parts of the brain or whatever, but in the stress response, we're fight, flight, freeze, right? And we don't right. actually have those options available in the creative kind of problem-solving space. So part of the coaching space is to create that, you know, non-judgmental, confidential, you know, how do I partner with you to support you through whatever it is that you're doing or whatever your goals are? Right. So I think the... I... I'm going to speak for my profession here. I'm sure yeah. there will, are people that will disagree with me. But the thing is, is that the definition of coaching per the International Coaching Federation is that there isn't a right or wrong. Like right. it's, it's the fact that we partner with the client to support them to find their own solutions, that what we may feel is right or wrong doesn't actually matter. If you're a consultant, it matters. Right. If you're their direct manager, it matters. But if you're their coach... You're partnering matter. with them to see to help them see new possibilities. Yeah. So I don't I don't know if that answers your question. I think no, you, I th you, you also just like uh, you're kind of like a professional doula in some respects. <laughs> it's like less this. well. It's it might be more. It's as emotional, but it's a little less like physically messy. Yeah. Um. Okay, so, yeah, uh, I'll ask you a personal one, too, because it ties to this. But to make it easier, I can go first on the, on the framework of it, right? Okay, so, because we briefly brought this up before in the context of COVID, right? Right. So, on the, like, divorce, relationship, um, uh, dissolution thing, conscious uncoupling or whatever you want to yep. call it, right? Okay, so... Did you ever feel like, because I, I feel like I've talked to like 15 people that have like been divorced or ended like long-term relationships or whatever. And I feel like all 15 of them say this exact same thing. And I feel the same way. Do you ever feel like there was a, there was like some moment in the arc of it where like probably both of you knew like, okay, this is where it really like hit the fucking wall. But, like, you still kept trying to do it afterwards. Like, there was some argument or some moment where you're, like, you look back in hindsight, hindsight being 2020 constantly, and you're, like, man, that was really where the fucking end should have been. But then there was, like, X amount of runway after that. Do you ever feel that way about your own uh, context? Just because I feel like everybody I've ever talked to about long-term breakup, divorce, whatever says that. So I was curious as to your perspective. So for me, like, for me, I'm going to say no, but okay. this is, this is a, I'm the minority here, right? I might be the exception that proves the rule, but uh -huh. what I talk to leaders about is we make the best decision we can with the information that we yes. had at the time. That's true. And 
And the thing is, is that I, we made a vow, right? We made a vow and like you work that stuff out. And then also for my particular situation, nobody lied, nobody cheated. We weren't fighting, you know, so it was, it was kind of an, there wasn't a a pretty abrupt runway, frankly. Uh So it is perhaps the combination of the fact that I coach people for a living to see the bright Uh side combined with a conscious uncoupling that was painful of course but we still are important people in each other's lives right now and the fact that our runway was relatively short that make me able to say no not that it that I I I don't feel like there's any wasted time but the thing is also I don't I don't do regret my thing is and like most people do right like I regret this I regret that 92 percent of people do Right. So, but I clock in with the timing is what it's supposed to be. I made the best decision I could. I also, I look for the good, right? I look for the learning. So if I'm looking for the good with my sparkly rose colored glasses all the time, that's what I'm going to find. And so it's funny, even as you talk about binary thinkers, even though I live in the gray, if someone tries to dark cloud me and convince me that something isn't gray or isn't rose colored good luck right because i will i will with that black and white commitment that we can look at on one hand and say oh people are in the black and white and they're holding too tight to their beliefs i will hold on to my rose colored glasses because that's how i choose to view the world right and that's just my worldview so um i'm i'm gonna go with exception proves a rule on that one do you think that um i would say the rose-colored glasses thing I like, um, uh, but I wonder sometimes, like, okay, I'm probably, like, overly negative too much, so I'm probably the inverse or reverse or opposite. <laughs> your dark-colored glasses, it's cool, right. man. So what I wonder is, like, okay, in your mind, where's the, where's the line on, like, positivity being a a positive thing that can drive you forward, no question, proven by science, et cetera. Where is the line between that and like moments that you have to be like embrace realism? So if you had a Mm -hmm. client and they were like, fucking Pollyanna. Yeah. Or their shit was in decline and they were in denial, like Pollyanna plus decline. Where's the moment that you, is there a moment where you have to, take off those glasses and be like, dude, let's be real for 45 seconds. And then we can go back to the possibilities and ideas in front of you. Right. Does that moment occur or what? So for me, I think the thing is, is I don't actually take those glasses off for that, that reality check, because to me that to be tall, you got to cast a shadow, right? And if you don't have a shadow or you think you don't have a shadow, then it's my role to, graciously and with compassion and with reminding you that you're paying me for my direct feedback to make you better, that you have a shadow and we need to look at, we may need to look at that. So it's not a blind spot. So for me, that still is, there's a, the way I was trained is solution focused coaching, right? You look, you can look backwards or you can look at the negative. If there's really information that you need there, but for most, the most part, the way that I was trained as a coach is you take what you have in the present moment and you figure out how, what in the present moment is going to serve you moving forward. But that's not only looking at the bright side. I guess for me, the definition of rose colored glasses, and this may not be the definition, this might just be my definition, is understanding right. that when we look at our shadows or when we deal with the dark, the darkness, or when we feel like we're getting our teeth kicked in Mm -hmm. that we recognize that we're going to make it through that. Yeah. Right. I I think that is, I think that's part of the definition. I mean, some people might just be like blatant positivity all the time. I don't actually think that. I don't trust people who, who are, you know, if you don't have any shadow or any darkness, like, Right. Who doesn't cast a shadow, right? right so so sure. to, to me, that's, that's, that's too one-sided. Or, I, feel like I, t- I feel like I told you this the first time we were talking. But, um, like, man, right after, 
I think it was like maybe like within six weeks, like right after I got divorced, I was like, again, this is not a positive emotional moment or whatever, but I was like, <clears throat> just to get out of my house and my headspace, I was like going to this bar by my house all the time. Like even if I had food to like cook myself or whatever, I'd be like, sure. fuck it, I'll just do that. It's just like to get out of my headspace, right? So, um, I was like talking. There was like a crew of people, like mostly married people with like young kids, which is weird. That would be there at like 7 p.m. all the time. <laughs> so I'd like bullshit with that, right? Okay, so one of these ladies like <sighs> introduced me to like one of her friends, and like this chick was like 50, and I was probably like 36 at the time. And <laughs> She was, like, separated, divorced. Like, I don't think it was legal yet. But um, I was, like, quote-unquote talking to her, but nothing happened. Like, it didn't go anywhere. But I just remember, too, this is, like, the whole thing with the uh, positivity. is like, she was legitimately separated, getting divorced, living apart from somebody that she did have children with and all that. If you went and looked at her, like, Instagram, Facebook. Oh, yeah. You told Oh, my God. It was like, it was like, I think I asked her once, like, at that bar, like, oh, well, like, when did your husband move out? And she's like, four weeks ago. And, like, if you go back, like, five weeks on her social media, it was like, like, family photos, like, golden retriever and church clothes and all this shit. Yeah, but that's, that's normal. I mean, that's, right, that's, I, that's thing, what people though, that's project. That's what people are. I also think that's what people think uh, when they think of rose-colored glasses sometimes, whereas I think your definition, like, hey, man, life can kick you in the teeth, but you're going to be okay. You'll keep going, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I I think it's, it's, it's part of how I see it. But for me, in order to keep a positive outlook that's real, right, that's not Pollyanna, that's not blinders, because I, I think some people might think rose-colored glasses is like, it's not numb right? You got to grieve your grief. You got to feel your feelings. Right. You got to recognize when you're angry or sad or whatever. You got to make space for that. And yep. if you need a minute, you need a minute. And a yep. lot of people don't take that minute. They just repress, right? So they're repressing and they, you know, you have your polished Instagram photos with the filters and all of that stuff, but that's, that's not authentic. So I think for me, right. the, the, it's a it's about like how do I show up authentically and in training coaches and helping coaches support their clients. For me, if we don't have hard times, like where's the empathy for our clients? Right? right. Where where do we are we able to know that yeah, if you started your own business because you got laid off and now you don't know how to turn a profit and you have a family to support. Like, that's not like, let's go skipping through the tulips. That's like, hey, let's roll our sleeves up and figure out, like, what do we need to be looking at? What blind spots? Right. But I still believe you can look for the good in that because normally the things that bite us are our strengths and overuse. So right. maybe a better way to say it is looking for the good versus yeah. rose colored glasses. But if we're going to put on glasses, I'm going to prefer rose to dark. Right. Totally. So, and that's like a lesson I always like try to give myself to in like lower moments you know what exactly okay so what drew you to even the coaching thing like ultimately how do you feel like you navigated to that spot yeah so post teach for america which uh, you know yeah. i i was thinking about staying on the reservation because you can't you can't live on the reservation or at least the navajo reservation if you aren't employed there. So right. I was determining whether I would extend for a third year. I loved my community, but at the same time, I just, you know, it's, it's hard, man. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's, it's the, the challenge of having special ed inclusion in a class where I'm, you know, I have so many different levels of students right. and, you know, trying to not teach to the middle, but at the same time, you know, I tried to teach to the middle and then take care of my high performers, but then, you know, having low perform, there's, there's only so much you can do. Like people, people that think 
People that think that teaching is easy have never taught. Never. And whoever said those who can't do teach. That's ridiculous. Has never been a teacher. I mean, I'm just going to, you know, shout out to all the teachers out there. Or, and to be like, oh, y'all get summers off. And it's like, "Uh uh-huh. And we grade papers every night too. Right? So, exactly. Exactly. So. um, the amount of virtue flags, this is a tangent, the amount of virtue flags about what teaching is and isn't um, in the broader societal discourse is amazing. Yeah. Like about about seven months ago, I got in a fight on, I want to say it was Facebook. With a real estate agent in front no. of an old timey map. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that happened like four weeks ago. I got in that fight like about seven, eight months ago on Facebook with this guy from Philadelphia is like a friend of a friend and he was like um, oh I found some meme like that I posted about when when LeBron went to the Lakers if you do LeBron's salary per minute of floor time in a given season and you compare that to like a 10 year veteran LA Unified School District 5th grade teacher it's like roughly the same for a minute versus a 12 month payday cycle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I like posted some meme. And this dude from Philadelphia was like, Ted, you don't understand how value is determined. And I was like, <laughs> okay, you're like, and you never taught in the inner city or right. in and a I'm rural like, environment. This is, here's the other thing. Then I'll let you get back to your coaching arc. What amazes me is not to make it, political but i'm gonna do that uh, anyway it's like you have a lot of people on the right side of the spectrum where like i agree with some stuff on that side no doubt but you have a lot of people on the right side of the spectrum who have this narrative of like uh, everybody can succeed the american dream is real uh pull yourself up by your bootstraps hustle harder whatever right and then they think, like, at the same time, they hold this thought that, like, teachers or, like, journalists are these, like, young, left-leaning pussies that, like, don't know how to hustle or whatever, right? And I'm like, dude, drop Mr., like, Charlie CFO into an inner-city school district and exactly. be like, here you go, man, do your best. That guy will piss his pants, right? <laughs> the, the thing with the guys that virtue signal the most about how teaching is dumb, get summers off, like blah, blah, blah. Those guys have no conception of life outside of their filter bubble of like boardrooms and meetings and slide decks and margin analysis and all that crap. That's all they know. If you take them outside and you're like, hey, this is real life where – stuff happens and people don't know what they're eating on Saturday morning. Exactly. Right? They don't right? understand that at all. Okay. Yeah. And well, and you even said that when we were, when we were training because someone, someone quit and I was like, how do you quit? Like we're right. two weeks, we're two weeks into a two year commitment, <laughs> but that's the thing. You were like, some of these people have never failed before. Yep. And it was, too. it was so insightful because I hadn't thought I just, we signed up for this, right. We signed up to try to make yeah, a difference do it, man. in yeah. communities and for education. And, you know, a couple people, it was the first time they ever realized that, you know, it doesn't matter how smart you are. If you're in front of a classroom, like obviously you need a certain level, but it takes so much more than that, especially if your kids don't have the right clothes and haven't eaten. And, you know, it's just so. I don't know if you were in my first, I I think you were in a different group or whatever, but my first freaking time at Land Trip Elementary in Houston, I forget what it was like third grade, fourth grade, like summer like language arts or some bullshit and like dude I had like kids like crawling like under their desks like trying to distract other kids right and it's like dude there is nothing about elite um like elite higher education crap that prepares you for that right well and you had never been in a public school right well I had never like I had never gone to public school no I mean, I've been in them, but I've never, like, actually physically gone a full academic year in one, no. 
Exactly. Well, and, and that's, you know, that's the other thing. And it, yeah, it's just, anyway, so we could talk about that for days, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Basically, you know, I was trying, I was trying to teach my kids what I was supposed to teach them. At the same time, the truth of the matter is, is I cared. The reason my kids learned from me is because I cared about them. And I tried to make it fun, but at the, you know, and then my first year I taught all of the standards I was supposed to teach, or at least tried to. My second year I picked, I like picked and chose more. And so they definitely retained more on the second year side. But mm. the thing is, is that I was so focused on the students and the life of the students that the actual teaching of the concepts I was supposed to teach them to me felt less important and secondary. And so I didn't know, I felt like also with just public education and school districts and you know, add on top of that, you know, reservation. So you have a lot of alcoholism and abuse and yep. it's not homelessness necessarily. You know, I would say that, that that wasn't necessarily an issue, but at the same time, like gangs were growing, like, you know, it's, yep. it's just, there's so much other stuff going on that for me, I was, I cared more about my students than about their, like how they did from a performance perspective. And that to me felt like that's in conflict, right? Because of course we want teachers to care about their students, but they also, you know, we need to get like significant gains or whatever. So I'd been planning to be a teacher my whole life. And all of a sudden I wasn't sure. And I had this student and he was special ed inclusion and he came into my class, not knowing how to read. And he left my class, not knowing how to read. Now, did he have survival skills? Yes. Did he learn conceptual things? Yes. Did he learn from me? Did he have a safe environment? Yes. But the thing is, is that I did not have the capacity or the skill to teach reading. That's the thing. I don't know how to teach reading. Like that's, you know, I'm a content teacher. It was middle school. So for me, that was something that I didn't want to make that okay. And I could feel myself burning out. So even though I loved my community and it was the hardest decision to this day that I ever made to leave when I did, um, I just felt like there, I have to... I didn't feel like it was the best use of my skills. I felt like I was pushing on a mountain that didn't move and I needed my mountains to move. And so in figuring out what was next, I wasn't sure what was next. And I was looking at kind of education based companies, but it was also definitely a point of self-discovery because I thought I was going to be a teacher my whole life. It was the one thing I never questioned. And so actually before I left the reservation though, um, the recruiter was Teach for America alumni and the executive vice president who ended up hiring me later and actually still works for Teach for America. So I had to have alumni who are making an impact in education, interviewing me in different companies was really meaningful to me. And um, that's when that's when in San Francisco, there was a company called Inside Track. Inside Track is still there. They're just not in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they coached college students to make the most out of their education, persist and graduate. So I was like, wait a second, you're coaching the students. So academics was a piece of it because they came to us as students. The universities would provide the coaching for the students at no cost. But then what happened is, is because we were supporting the students, they would be more likely to persist and graduate. Cause that's what people don't realize. There's such a drive to try to get people to college but a lot of people in college don't even make it past the first term. Right. And then they have debt that they can't pay off. And so it's, you know, I'm all about, you know, supporting people to go to college if that's what they want, though there's a lot of other options out there that I think should be on the table, especially because they don't cost the same amount. But even when people are getting into college, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, especially when you have people who are first generation online classes working jobs, have kids, right? It's a lot to manage. So when I transitioned into that and I was, it felt like a better fit. So because I was still supporting students and part of education, but I was from a coaching perspective where academics were a piece of it. And then from there, I started training coaches and managing coaches and, you know, then went and got my master's in executive coaching and organizational behavior became an internationally certified coach, started training coaches to be internationally certified. So what I love about it is, you know, I, I worked in that inside track is a 
you know, still running, supporting students in higher ed. I worked there for 10 years, built sustainable coaching programs in community colleges. So it was an amazing experience in coaching. And then I, you know, with the organizational development, I pivoted over to a healthcare company where I was doing more kind of executive coaching. Uh And then now I do a combination of teaching coaches how to coach, helping leaders integrate coaching skills, and then also coaching in corporate and also entrepreneurs, you know, just coaching people on how to make the most of their businesses or be better managers. So for me, what's interesting is the education component is still there. I'm just not in the classroom. And some of that too is also from a business minded standpoint, people pay coaches a lot of money and people don't pay teachers. So it doesn't mean that you're not kind of teaching and supporting people to have a better perspective, but that was, you know, for me, coaching was a way to actually be aligned with the fact that I was more kind of people focused Right. versus results focused. Well, what do you think that is? You think it's just a value structure because teaching and coaching are, they have a lot of overlap. I think in the worst context, you can view teaching as like de facto babysitting. And I'm sure I know I had a couple parents, grandparents sets that did probably view teaching as that and coaching. I don't think would ever be viewed as that. I think sometimes in larger corporate, I think coaching can get lip service or have like a weird connotation, but I don't think anybody views it as babysitting, right? So, well, I mean, you... some of some of the accountability it depends on the accountability, and some of it depends on the confidence level and the experience of your coach, right. as well as how much the client is engaged. I think the thing is, is it's just preference. Like, if I'm teaching or consulting or managing, I'm responsible for the answers right? Let me educate you. Let me teach you how to do this. You know, this is, this is what people, this is what we recommend based on our industry experiences, et cetera. From a coaching perspective, and I'm talking about coaching from a pure international coaching federation definition, from a coaching perspective, what they say is that the clients are resourceful and whole so that they have the questions and the answers, but it's our role to hold up a mirror to them. So, and then partner with them, which is hard. You know, when I go into a situation like this, where someone's like, how do I save my business? And I have to say, let's figure it out, right? Let's roll up our sleeves and figure it out because there is no answer. So what's interesting right now is that, you know, and, and I actually work with principals in one of the school districts, which is awesome because it's a way to be involved in education from a coaching perspective they're managing in this unprecedented time, right? Nobody has the answers. Nobody knows when this is going to end. And so when I was talking to them this morning, I was like, look, this is time to lean in your coaching because coaches aren't supposed to have the answer anyway. So asking those open-ended questions, listening, helping paint a picture, you know, what do you want to take away from this experience? You know, when we get through this, what do you want to be able to say about what you learned or how you handled it? Like this is when there are no answers, coaching is the perfect time um, because the coach is not supposed to have the answers. Now, every coach will like show me a coach who doesn't mix coaching and consulting, right? Like it's, you know, what we, we offer what we offer in service of our clients, but people who are really kind of on the International Coaching Federation, like have that certification or focus on leveling up. It's really about partnering with our client, which is hard sometimes when, you know, I work with executives as a last resort before termination. And when I walk in and they're about to get fired and I'm the reason, you know, I'm their last chance. And they look at me like, how do I fix this? And I have to be like, I don't know. We have to figure it out together. And that's, that's hard because people want answers and they pay for answers. But in unprecedented times, or when we don't know how to fix it, because we would have fixed it already, that's where I think the coaching comes in as the most valuable. All right, I've, I've written a couple of things about this for people, and I feel like you'd have a good take on it. I think it's more prevalent in men, although it happens in women. Um, I think sometimes there is an overemphasis on, at a leadership level, there's an overemphasis on decisiveness or For sure. per- perceived decisiveness. And I think there is a 
kind of like there's been full books written about this so it's not a new concept but i think that there is a reaction response problem where in a lot of organizations if you react quickly to things you are viewed as decisive but usually the reaction lacks a thought process or context or nuance or a combination with a longer term thinking right so um do do you ever encounter that in like potentially soon to be terminated people or teams and like is there a way especially with men because i feel like they're more hardwired to like have to prove themselves as well and to solve the oriented and decisive right totally is there a way to walk people off that cliff because i feel like when you are all reaction, there okay, there is a yin and yang, because if you are all response, you can be viewed as indecisive and taking too passive. long to deal with stuff, passive, right. Sure. If you are all reaction, I feel like you're super hair trigger and your teams probably don't accomplish that much long term, right? Yeah. So where's kinda like where's that middle slash how do you convince some like hard charging guy that like re- like taking time to respond to uh, questions or initiatives and not immediately have answers is valid? So I think there there's two there's two things that you see as people go from whether it's mid level management to kind of that senior executive level or whether it's kind of the difference between a VP and an EVP or an EVP and a CEO is how strategic are you and how much can you delegate and delegate well and kind of manage the people components of it. So I think the thing is, is that it's societally, yes, I would say more with men than women, right? You're rewarded for being able to fix it. And then Mm -hmm. also people get promotions for their ability to act quickly, be decisive, make the right decision. We'll clean it up later. So some of that is our culture and we reward for that. But then people hit a certain level where if they want to go higher, they have to be strategic. They have to start thinking long game. And then also it doesn't matter that they were the best performer in all of the land when you're managing a team of people who are supposed to do the work. So you're then either micromanaging or you're in the weeds too much because you're not being strategic. So I think the hard thing about why people answer instead of coach is that coaching, it's long game it takes longer. Like if you have a question and I have an answer, that's an easy fix, but it's the whole kind of give a man to fish versus teach him to fish. Teaching someone's teaching someone to fish is time consuming, but it's long game strategy. It's kind of like what's happening with the market, right? Like stocks are on sale. You might take a dip, but it's also, if you have 10, 20, 30 years, like this is potentially a really good time to buy, right? Yep. Not a financial advisor. <laughs> Don't it's go, also, you know? Right. Right. It's so, also, it's also like we deify like sports and military stuff when we talk about business. And like some of those analogies are flawed because I don't really think business competition is war, although we like to kind of paint that picture. Um, and then, you know, like with sports, I feel like when you get to professional athletics, like you're talking about the top 1% of the 1% athletically or whatever. So I think comparing them to like Mikey middle manager is like, it's a little bit fraught, right? But we talk about uh, sports and war and stuff in these business analogies. And like, I always think it's hysterical because like war is like, largely about long-term strategy military is largely about that yes there is some reaction but it's largely about long-term strategy and sports is like man there are entire divisions of like scouts and executives that like try to build the right team like the cohesive team with the right parts right and it's like the things that are actually happening in professional athletics and military I feel like we sometimes ignore them in a work context. It's like, no, this shit is important. Like coaching is a long-term back and forth process of like developing people's strengths and like managing away from their weaknesses and stuff. Right. And we're just like, Oh man, this guy's a great NFL coach. Like get him as a speaker or whatever. And it's like, 
dude, he actually does what these consultants that you're bringing in need to be doing too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I just feel like we miss that sometimes. Well, it's just, the thing is, the question is, you know, a lot of the, that's what's interesting. I was reading an article about how it's talking about like, even after the shut-in, Something about how, you know, Americans are obsessed with work, right? We work more than other countries. We value that work ethic. Like, that's how we measure hard work. But the thing is, is that if you don't delegate and you don't coach and you're not strategic, you burn yourself out and you don't get to take vacation. And I think the the heart, probably the heartbreaking thing for so many people right now who are either at risk of layoff or getting laid off or even have the survivor guilt because they didn't get laid off is that in this, you were talking about this in that podcast is that they, in your podcast that like people think that they're irreplaceable, right? right? Because I love this company so much and I would die for this company. And then the company has a reduction in force, right? So it's just, you know, a lot of people, I think the reason a lot of people don't coach because they either feel like they don't have time. That's usually it, right? Because it is a long-term strategy. I don't think it's a lack of desire. It's just the overwhelm. There's too much work. There's not enough time. You have some people who don't coach because they don't want their teams to be better than them because they haven't faced their shadows or their insecurities. And then, you know, it's also people don't know how because when people talk about coaching in a business aspect, they usually mean fix it, right? It's a what coaching means kind of per like the purity of it in the kind of professional coaching world is not necessarily what it means in a business context right now. But I also know you wanted to go on the personal side and I'm going to have to wrap up pretty soon. Did you have another personal question? I just had one actually. So I was going to say, let's do even within um, thirties. Right. And this is like a more on the spot question. So you don't have to have some other worldly answer to it. But since you turned 30, do you think that there's any kind of like viewpoints on life or mantras or perspectives or whatever that like 18 year old you, 24 year old you would like never fucking think about? And now you're (laughs) like, oh man, this is like, shit that's more in focus for me or I think about more like just ways that you feel like you've enlightened yourself in the past like five to ten years um either growth or like uh shit that's feel like you've reversed you initially and then you grew from it or whatever yeah I mean I think one of them we already talked about because even 22 year old me thought I was going to be a teacher for my whole life. Right. So from second grade, when I first even, or the first inklings of what do you want to be when you grow up? Like I used to have school for my stuffed animals in the, basically like the storage can storage area underneath the stairs. Right. Right. So it's like, and I had a, my mom gave me one of her grade books and it was like a gold mine. Right. So (laughs) my whole life I was going to be a teacher And so that moment when all of a sudden it was like, I don't know this thing I've never questioned in my entire life. I'm questioning now. Like that happened when I was maybe 23 or 24. So, Uh you know, that was one. And then what happened, the one that happened when I was 37 was I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. And... I had a business. Yes, I was a business owner, but my coaching business was my side hustle. I never wanted it to be my main hustle. I never thought it would be my main hustle. And so the identity shift I had to make in order to just even accept that and not feel like, not feel like I was just getting kicked in the teeth or be able to actually figure out like the rose colored glasses got knocked off my face (laughs) and had to find them and like get those things back on. Right. So I think the thing is, is, you know, and I mean, the same thing, even with divorce, right? Like I, I signed on for forever. I thought that was forever. And that was the most painful thing, which honestly is still some of what I'm processing now years later is I don't, I don't know that I can or believe in forever in the same way. So I think, I think it's interesting that you talked about black and whites and absolutes because what's happened in my life. I'm not, I'm one for gray area. I'm super flexible. I like flexibility. If you 
you know, if you ask me a yes or no question, I'll agitate you because I'll say it depends or I'll ask a bunch of clarifying questions. So I live so much of my life in the gray, but there are times when there are things in my life that I just didn't question, right? You get married and it's forever. I don't want to be, and I won't be an entrepreneur. I'm going to be a teacher when I grow up. And I think how you handle those moments and the support that you have around you to help you get through those moments, to me, those have been really life-defining. Yeah, that's that's beautiful, dude. Um, <laughs> last thing I was going to ask you within that, too, is uh, do you ever feel like, did you ever feel, or you may still feel it, post-divorce, do you ever feel like it's easier to treat some shit transactionally, like both professionally and personally, whereas maybe beforehand when you had more of a belief in like the forever or the ephemeral or whatever, it's like when you come back on the other side of it, you can just go through like the smallest or biggest like things in a week to week basis and you're like eh whatever like it's not like a malaise thing but it's like easier to treat things as transactional interesting so i i wouldn't have put it like that but that's a fascinating way to look at it because yeah that's the thing you there's now at least three absolutes in my life that are no longer the case right right And I don't know if transactional would be the word. I don't disagree with you. I think that's a really interesting point, but it it shifts your perspective, right? So, you know, it's it's interesting as thinking about like love and trying to even believe in love again or feel like, not that love doesn't exist, but, you know, thinking about kind of anteing up for that and do I want to risk that? There, there is some of that kind of transactional, like, nah, (laughs) or or kind of you know like no I'm good right like it definitely adds a layer of whether you want to call it realism or cynicism in there um that you know is is different from the hopeless romantic I was pre-divorce and it doesn't mean I don't still have those hopeless romantic tendencies but they're also layered in with a more kind of potentially realistic sometimes cynical element that I didn't have before. So would I call that transactional? I don't know. Like, I don't disagree with you. I think it's just, it's an interesting, no, but it's, I think it's a good point. And it's, it's something that, you know, I'll think about. Have you ever, um, have you been to a wedding since you, you got divorced? Yes. Yes. So obviously the first, the first, the first wedding sucks. The first one is so fucking surreal where you're (laughs) literally like, dude, you literally sit there and you're like, all of this is meaningless. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like impossible to get out of that mindset. And talk about rose colored glasses. You want. Yeah. They're, they're crushed. They're crushed. It's like, you're like, you're crawling on the floor looking for them. (laughs) (laughs) Or, or you have, I think the people who are like wise and this me because you do have people who literally like the the divorce papers aren't signed yet and it's you know on to the next right oh my God, so yeah. my, you know uh, so <laughs> yeah go ahead, go ahead that happens too so I I don't know that that's everyone's reactions but I will I will say yeah that first wedding is brutal oh, especially when you watch someone promise to love each other till death oh, do you part oh, and yeah, you've just dude. gotten divorced that's yeah, yeah. Mine was like about, it was almost like a year, it was almost like a year to the day, and it was Oof. like at some joint in the shadow of like where Kennedy got shot in Dallas, <laughs> right? And You're like, perfect. Like, and I was like, oh God, I, and I didn't even know them that well. It was kind of like a friend. What were you a, doing, man? Someone like should have intervened. Someone should have like stopped you. It was like a friend of a friend thing. No. And what, what, was, what, was, what was like super woke about it was I... I was there for like, I don't know, the requisite like two hours. And then I probably lived 30 minutes from where this wedding was. And I was like, well, I got to go let my dog out. <laughs> they were like, well, 
couldn't you like get somebody and let your dog out? I'm like, yeah, no. I've got to do it myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're no like, I have choice, been. But... I don't. I don't know. I don't know where your friends were though. Like your real friends who let oh, yeah. you go to a friend of a friend's wedding around the year of your anniversary. Like friends. Yeah, I don't divorce, know. Divorce. Your divorce crew should have stepped in and been like, no, man, we're drinking tonight. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't really remember how that evolved, nor do I remember why I thought in any moment that that was going to, like, be a cool thing to do. With, but like, you had to do it eventually. You got to rip the right, band. You know what I mean? Right. Like, you got to, like, even if the car accident is really bad, right. like, you, there's other cars, right? Right, for sure. For sure. And I would say, um, final thing on that wedding front, then I'll let you go, is like one thing that always kills me too is when <clears throat> this is only recently, I feel like I've noticed it more in the last three to four years. When you go to a wedding and every speech by the like parental level, grandparent level, is a presupposition of how many kids that couple is going to have. I feel like mm. I've been to like four or five of those in a row, right? Well, you also and, live in Texas now, my friend. Right, although some of them were like, pit, like one was in Pittsburgh and like huh. one was like, they were outside of that region, but that is a good point for sure. But like, um, it's just like so fucking funny where I'm always like, Literally nobody in this room knows what this is even going to look like in two years, <laughs> right? So like, right. we can't, we can't just jump to like, we can't just jump to like the perfect family photo on Easter Sunday just yet. You know what I mean? And like, maybe that's what I'm saying when I say transactional is like, I just look at stuff differently than maybe I would have six years ago, right? Um, but it's, it's just interesting to like be in those scenarios with that context, you know? Well, and I also think, I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, someone was telling me this as I planned for my own wedding. They're like, look, people spend all this time on the wedding, but they don't talk about the actual marriage, right? Like preparing for the marriage and what that, what's that like? And I think the hard thing for couples is that when the focus is on kids, unless that's really what they want and that's what they've always wanted. And maybe that's even why they're getting married. Like that's one thing, but otherwise it just becomes pressure. And, and the thing is, is that I think a lot of times people and is intent is good, but it's the same kind of thing. Part of the reason I don't work in higher ed anymore, you know, I love higher ed, but the thing is, is there's other options out there. There's other options out there that are often a better fit. They may be financially better, you know, maybe a better match for the person, and, you know, I think people need to start asking those same questions. And, you know, it sounds like I'm throwing Texas under the bus, which I'm not. But in coming from San Francisco, the the reaction here is kind of like, you're having kids? Like, uh, really? Yeah, like, is yeah. that a good idea, dude? Right. Like, are you going right. to be okay? Right. Are you going to be able to afford that? But that's that's such a rarity. Well, and you, so I th- you got a, you got a contingent that, like, one of the things that annoys me about Texas contextually is you got a, you got a contingent of, and I'm not trying to define them as hopeless, but it'll come off like that. But you got a contingent, <laughs> you got a contingent of, of women who like their grandmother helped raise them or whatever. And their grandmother just drills into them. Like, this is your role. This is like what you're supposed to do with your formative years. Right. And that's all they fucking know because of their family faith structure or whatever. Right. And you don't see that as much on quote unquote coasts. Right. It's more in the middle where you see people be like, Oh, you know, like, I love my grandmother, I love my mom, and they, like, pounded into me that, like, this is, this is it, and this is the path, right? And you don't see that as much with, like, women in Seattle or, like, Philadelphia (laughs) that I, like, know or have interacted with, right? So it is, there is, like, a geo and a faith thing that goes into all that for Sure. sure. Yeah. It also, I mean, it comes down to conditioning, right? So the thing is, is that there, you know, there's tax cuts if you have kids, right? Like it's right. the continuation of the species. There's also just like those leaders who are rewarded for giving those quick answers, right? You know, we look at like life purpose and like that 
you know, not being parents, I know we can't speak to the meaning that that gives to people's lives and the level of love that you'd have for a child. So it's like, I, I understand that. I, I just, for me, it comes down to choice, right? You know, do I choose this person even though maybe someday we won't choose each other, right? Do I choose to have kids? You know, do I choose not to have kids? You know, I, I think it's a matter of people making choices. But the other thing is, is that when people start asking questions and, and making active choices, they're not as easy to control, right? So, you know, that's, that's a whole kind of other, I, I look at that as a positive thing, right? Yes. Empowerment, make your not own choices, does. right? But the thing is, is that if you didn't have people going along or trusting, we would potentially have more loss of life based on our current pandemic because people wouldn't be, you know, sheltering in place, right? So, you know, it's, I think it's, that's all probably a different discussion for a different day, but I just, I think the choice is really important. And I think, I think people should be celebrated regardless, like make your choices, feel good about your choices, define your life, how you want to define it, obviously in an ethical standpoint, that's not hurting other people. Um, But, you know, I think there's so many different ways for us to find fulfillment. And I don't know how I got on this or because we're talking about weddings. But, you know, I think the I didn't know that asking a couple if they had set a date when they tell you that they're engaged. I didn't know Uh how ridiculous of a question that was until I got engaged. Right. Right. So sometimes you just don't even know. But I think there's enough pressure in the world that we should be intentional about how sometimes our expectations or even wishes and hopes for people can put pressure on them.